I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's good, Celtics Nation? Welcome back to the Celtics Pod. As usual, I'm your boy, Adam Taylor. As usual, I'm joined by Mr. Greg Manakis. And as usual, we're going to be doing a weekly review for y'all. But before we get started, Happy New Year, everybody. I hope everybody had a great New Year's Eve, stayed safe, had some beers, had some wine, whatever it is you guys and girls do for fun. Hope you all stayed, had a great time, man. Greg, what did you do for New Year's Eve? New Year's Eve, I went to a show. Um, I went out to this place called Antones, which is like a classic blues blues venue here in Austin. And I went to go see this dude, Corey Henry. He's the keyboard player for Snarky Puppy. I don't know if you know Snarky Puppy, but he has his own uh, his own solo project with the band. And he's just amazing, man. He just absolutely, absolutely murdered it. Um, we didn't make it to midnight. Um, my girlfriend and I wanted to sneak out to our favorite uh, uh, truck. It's called Shawarma Point here in Austin, Texas. So we got ourselves some chicken shawarma wraps and got home before midnight. Um, so we got to spend midnight together at home with the dogs and um, just do the fam thing. So that was cool. And and now I'm just on my seven week yearly pilgrimage towards uh, my my birthday, which is February 23rd. And every year I go on a health kick, crash diet, uh, stop drinking. So I do like seven weeks of sobriety. And usually I drop about like 15, 20 pounds and get in really good shape. Yo, 15, 20 pounds, but I need to lose 50, so that's a good way to get started right there. Now, nah, man, uh, what's this chicken swarma? swarma? What, 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 yeah, swarma. You know, you know what swarma is? No, it's sir. like, um, I, I want to say it's either Indian or Mediterranean. I, I feel like it might We're be more Mediterranean. Swarma. Swarma point, yeah. But it's it's dope, man. It's um, It's like in a in like a thick pita bread almost, or like almost like a naan bread. Oh, so we and, call these kebabs? Okay, yeah, it's, it's it's very similar to a kebab. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I bet. I know what you want. This looks delicious. I can see the, Dude, I can see the truck right now. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And they have white people spicy versus tan people spicy versus brown <laughs> people spicy. So we went with the white people spicy, even though we're both, uh, we're both mixed uh, ethnicities. My girlfriend's uh, half Mexican and half white, and I'm half Chinese, half white. Um, but we we play, we aired on the side of cost, you know. It's New Year's Eve, man. You don't want to yeah, have like a on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Yo, I'm telling you, dude. I went to um, I went to the theater. So out here, especially in my city, we have some. Do you know what pantomimes are? Mm, I know. But, the, what so the it's word like means. A, yeah, so it's like like um, they're really big, especially in my city. People come from like all over Europe to watch them here. So it's very much like um, innuendo filled, crowd inclusive, like a show, but like yeah. Um, it's for kids, but they make sure that they're throwing enough adult innuendos and jokes that everybody's going to have a good time, you know? And like, for they sure. do like, um, they do like, it's, it's really cool. But I ended up falling to sleep dude, in this show. Like, <laughs> woke, I, woke, like I must have slept for like for the first 40 minutes because we got there a little bit early. I sat down, it was warm. I'm just like, yo, I woke up, man. I didn't have a clue what was going on in the show. Like, my wife's like, yo, you've been snoring. People behind have heard, like, they've oh, made comments. I'm like, yo. So we come out of there around about seven, probably I drove home because it was downtown. I drove home, got home about eight, had some dope bomb Chinese food. Nice. And then bro, I just kicked it like it was a normal day, man. Like waited till midnight, went out with the kid, like out the front, watched all the fireworks. We live right by a park and everyone was letting them off in the park. So um, I mean, like literally I can walk to the park in like two minutes. 
So like they were right there on us. So that was good. And then got straight to bed, man. Treated like a normal day. And then so uh, at what point? At what point were you able to watch that Celtics game? Because that Celtics New game was Day, on. Bro. Yeah, so I okay. was in the theater when, like, when I booked tickets, I never thought to check the schedule because games were always late for me. So I'm like, yo, I'll be yeah. back way. And then like the day of, I'm like, what time? Did, what time's the game tonight? I'm like, right, it's six p.m. Then I've realized it's not six p.m. Eastern; it's six p.m. my time. <laughs> I'm like, what? So I'm like, okay, well, the, the show starts at five fifteen, so there's no way I'm going to be back in time for the game. And then I'm like, man, I get home. I want to spend, you know, I want to be with the family. It's New Year's Eve and that. So I just pushed it to New Year's Day. I got up about 7 a.m. and watched the game. So like, uh, that's like what, 2, 3 a.m. Eastern. So I'd seen it by the time everybody woke back up and it was just like a normal day then. But I was a bit sad, man, because it was probably the best game of the season. So how do you how do you go about doing that? Like, do you not check any of your notifications? Do you not know what the score is when you yeah, go in and watch the game? So, so usually... uh. The, the usual routine is if I know there's a game, like tonight, I wanted to watch it live because it's quite reasonably timed. But as we were speaking about before we came on air, I've got a university assignment to do. So usually what I'll do is I'll just shut down all of my socials on my phone, turn off all my notifications. And then when I wake up in the morning, my, my league pass is set not to show me the scores. So yeah. I just click into it and then just watch it like like I'm watching live, you know? like mm. But obviously... On New Year's Eve, it was too early for me to shut down my notifications. So I did know the score coming into the game, but I didn't look at like who had good performances, who had. So I, I, I'm trying to, I'm being really um, cautious on having preconceived notions about players on a game to game basis. Like, mm. So it's like, you know, I'm not a fan of the way Dennis Schroeder plays. So that naturally means whenever I watch Dennis Schroeder, I only see the bad, not the good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to be a lot more cautious with my preconceived notions of players. So I try and the one thing that I'm very, very big on doing at the moment is not looking at what people think of individual performances. Um, so I made sure to stay away from that, especially after the last few episodes where we've kind of spoke about Jalen Brown struggles. I didn't mm-hmm. want to go in thinking, yo, Jalen Brown struggling and only seeing the bad from him because that's all I was looking for. Yeah. And I mean, as as an aspiring writer, as I just found out, you know, with that screenplay that we were just working on editing, one of the things that you're going to have to do as a writer, man, is you got to like understand what your own biases are. Right. Yeah, so for sure. That, yeah. That, that's a that's a really important skill, especially as a basketball analyst. Um, but as an aspiring screenplay writer, I'm not even trying to be a screenplay writer. It's just this is like so. So the course I'm doing is creative writing and journalism. And then this year is advanced creative writing. So we've got to do um, a prose piece. We've got to do a screenplay piece, a poetry piece. Then we've got to do like, um, I don't know, something else. And then it will be like a end of year project. Then I've got next year will be differences in language. So the science behind choosing the specific words for all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, I've never wrote a screenplay in my life. Never once have I sat down and thought to myself, you know, what? I'm going to write screenplays for a living. And then these it's, guys are like, it's a know, lot I'm easier, gonna... but it's a lot easier, bro, to edit a screenplay and do what I just did with you than it is to be the person who has to like come up with all the ideas. If you yeah. give me something, I can like see all the things that I would like to see happen in that screenplay. But if you tell me like sit down from scratch, just like create a screenplay or create a story, I really struggle with that. I'm I'm a far better editor than I am writer. So they gave me they gave me seven days to do a fifteen page screenplay from scratch with no like they weren't like it needs to be about this time. It was like literally listen, you have full creative freedom. Here's fifteen blank pages. Make it make sense within seven days. 
stuff. So I'm like, yo, that's t- on top of work. And I'm like, man, you give me this over New Year's Eve, over Christmas. So realistically, <laughs> I'm losing four of those seven. You gave me three days, dude. But I ain't doing it over. Like, that's not fair, dude. I, mean, yeah. I don't know if anyone watches No Life Shack on YouTube, but man, that's tough. I don't know what yeah. that is. You don't know what that is. No, it's like 2.8 million subscriber um, music reaction. There'll be people on here that understand. I, could, I just can't go as high-pitched as what he does. But, uh, yo, man, it's tough, man. It's tough. But, yeah, it definitely, like, uh, it put me into that mind frame of not having preconceived notions about things, which I'm trying to... What did you take away from that game, man, that you didn't, you didn't go into that game with your preconceived notions before we get into our Sunday format? Um, what were your just, like, takeaways? First things first, they need to run more offense through the bigs because the the amount of offense they got from the mid post, from above the break in the delay formation, um, you know, from like side not not side outs, but like not under. So it's still the mid post, but extended towards the corner where they were running stuff for Robert Williams and back cutting and stuff. Like I think that there's on a team that's lacking a true playmaker, like a true primary creator. When you've got two bigs that can initiate offense all across the floor, you need to utilize that as much as possible because a lot of the good stuff that came, you know, the back cuts that they ran, the split actions that they ran, uh, the way they were faking handoffs and then going into secondary cuts, that all came because the big man was the guy initiating the offense. When there was Marcus Smart initiating offense, things ran well, but I felt like um, there was more times where they had to devolve into a secondary offense or a secondary set or secondary action, because it's easier to shut down a point guard that needs to drive before generating that offense than to shut down a big man that's literally just in a post position that's looking for a cutout. It's so much harder to kind of game plan for. So that was my primary takeaway. I think Jalen Brown slowly grew into that game as both a creator and a scorer. Um, I still think the team's biggest weakness is uh, transition defense. I think that's been an issue all year. Don't think that's going to be something they resolve anytime soon, uh, but that's fine. Like if if your weakness is transition defense, but you're you're making most of your attempts, then you're not really giving up many transition buckets, right? Yeah. So I'm cool with that. Uh, I, I still don't believe Jalen Brown will ever be the guy that'll be your number one option. What I'd like to be, what I'd like to see, is more games like that from JB, where Tatum's out and JB steps into that role, so you know that you can always lean on Brown to do kind of what the Clippers are leaning on Paul George to do, and that's lead an offense while the clear-cut number one guy's out. If, and that's kind of what really tipped me over the edge last week was like, Brown's got this amazing opportunity, a bigger role than he's ever had in his career. He's shown growth in every area of his game over the last few years, and all of a sudden, you're absolutely tanking in the, in the biggest opportunity you've had so far. And for me, you need to be able to trust your number two to play as your number one while your number one's out because injuries are inevitable. Yeah, for sure. And going back to what you were saying about running offense through the bigs, um, one thing that you know I was thinking a lot about during that game, especially because DeAndre Ayton wasn't there, JaVale McGee wasn't there, so you could you know ask yourself, you know how how would that offense have looked if they had their primary backline defenders there, you know. Um, when you get the ball to Robert Williams in the high post, uh, you get the ball to Al Horford in the high post, and you allow them to make uh, reads off of split actions and back cuts and things of that nature, one thing that you'll often see, and this is more, I, I know you probably know this, Adam, I'm kind of just like talking to the to the public here. One thing that you're going to see is that big men like DeAndre Ayton or JaVale McGee, they have a couple options there, right? They can go up and pressure the ball. They could pressure Robert Williams and make those passing lanes difficult, or they can kind of sag off, especially because Robert Williams is not a shooter, 
right? So they could sag off into the paint. And one thing that the Celtics were able to do in that game, and I think I would love to see them do more if they continue to do this, is the moment that big man decides to sag off of Robert Williams or sag off of Al Horford, don't say, okay, I have a shot. I'm going to take that shot. Now I have 10 feet of space between me and my defender. I'm going to take one dribble, keep the offense moving, go dribble handoff. And now my my um, ball handler is coming into space, right, off that dribble handoff and, and the bigs in, in a deep drop position. You could get a wide open three-pointer, things of that nature. Um, so that is one thing that I'm excited about for sure is seeing how they continue to develop that. With Jason Tatum coming back, are they going to continue to – look to run offense more through the bigs than, than they have in the past. Um, but I think we should get into our, our Sunday format. Um, and the first thing that we normally do here on our Sunday format is we give a weekly progress report on one of the players on the team. I'm happy to go first if, if you want, Adam. Um, yeah, I, I picked Josh, pick Josh Richardson. I picked Josh Richardson. Um, so with Josh Richardson – I don't know if you listened to the Bill Simmons pod, but on a recent Bill Simmons pod, his buddy Joe House, who, you know, just like his buddy, um, but he postulated that Josh Richardson might be one of the worst contracts in the league. And he gave Bill Simmons some flack about the signing. And Simmons doubled down on his belief that Richardson hasn't been good for the Celtics and that he was a bad signing. Right. So I just kind of want to start with there. Like Bill Simmons is one, one of the biggest basketball pundits out there in the world on the podcast. Um, network and he's obviously a huge Celtics fan so why are you thinking Josh Richardson is a bad player this year for the Celtics Bill Simmons and anyone else out there who's saying Josh Richardson doesn't belong on this team so over the last four games throwing out his return um, from COVID against the Clippers Josh Richardson so I'm throwing out the game against the Clippers averaging 19.5 points in his last four games on 51 percent from the field and it's a plus 22 this season he has 13 games in double digits. So he's played 24 games. He has 13 games in double digits. And he has done that very efficiently, only taking 15 shots one time. Every other game this year, he shot the ball less than 15 times. And not only that, you know, he's been super impactful on defense. The Celtics are 13 and 11 in games that he plays. And in those 13 games that they win, they have a defensive rating of 100.6. And this season, Bill Simmons and everyone out there who's hating on Josh Richardson, I don't know who else is, um, if, if his numbers remain at this level, he will be at a career high in field goal percentage, three-point percentage, effective field goal percentage, and true shooting percentage. And he's doing it averaging the least amount of field goal attempts per game outside of his rookie year, which is crazy to me. Josh Richardson, in my opinion, has been an absolute steal this year. And I want to see him, I don't want to see him get traded this year because I think that what he provides on both ends of the floor and as efficiently as he's doing it, he's someone that I want to see in this rotation. So you see, the only way I could even begin to compartmentalize why somebody would think that Richardson's a bad addition to the roster is because they were all in on developing Romeo and Neesmith, right? Like that's the only the only reason. When you look in terms of production, in terms of impact, in terms of like bench leadership, somebody that can come in and really steady an offense, steady a defense with the way he plays. Josh Richardson's been the guy that you would want, right? And I said this on a podcast recently, if you had more players playing the way Josh Richardson is off the bench, you're not below 0.500 at this point in the season. There's just no way. Um, so like that mid-range game has been cash. His three-point shooting, you know, it's regressed to the mean a little bit. I don't think he's as good now. Like he, he's cooled off a little bit from the beginning of the year. 
for that mid-range shot, especially if you're going to keep running offense for the bigs, like you say, if a big man does drop in, you run those DHOs on the, uh, on the high post, then you're going to be getting guys like Josh Richardson curling into a bunch of space around the free throw line. It's exactly where you want Richardson taking the jumper. Um, I don't see a world where you can not be happy with what you're getting off Josh Richardson. For the price that he's costing you, uh, the bench production you were getting last year versus the bench production you're getting this year, in terms of that wing position, I feel like Josh Richardson is just an enormous upgrade. So unless you were really sold on Neesmith, which I was to begin the year, to be fair, uh, on Neesmith becoming that like seventh or eighth man in the rotation, heck, I was asking for him to be a starter at one point. Like, um, There's no way you can be upset with Josh Richardson. There really isn't. I came into the season expecting him to be a marginal piece, and uh, he's one of the guys I would consider like, Integ- like if you're going to trade him, I want something tangible back. This isn't we're moving him on for a draft asset. This has to be a tangible piece because he's impactful. For sure, I see him. You know, if we if we ended up moving him, like say moved him to the Denver Nuggets or moved him to uh, the Golden State Warriors or somebody like that, like those are two teams I could see him thriving on. You know, the, I, I think he's a really smart player. He cuts well. He's great in split actions when he's going to set screens. He's great at slipping out of those off-ball screens. Um, for everyone listening, like the split action, say there's Robert Williams has the ball at the top of the key, and then you have two guards um, running towards each other right? With, it, with an option to come off the screen, and someone can then sp- um, slip that screen off-ball. Off you often see big men slipping screens in like, um, pick-and-roll situations, but if he's able to... Go set that screen and slip out of it early off the ball. Josh Richardson's great on that. The Golden State Warriors do that all the time. Um, I think that's a team that I wouldn't mind seeing if everything just continues to go south for the Celtics and we just want to move off pieces. I, I would like to see Josh Richardson go to a team that has a chance because I think he, he's done a great job. And I think that his value right now, the Celtics have done such a wonderful job rebuilding his trade value where if we did move him, I think we, as you said, I think we would actually get something of of value back. Like I think you might even get a first round pick for him at this point. Like he's playing that well, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, you I think for your uh, for your progress report. So mine's Marcus Smart, simply because like I didn't think that his absence was going to be felt as heavily as what it was until he came back against Phoenix, right? So two games that was it. Two, I think it was two games out with that hand laceration. Said he went to the floor, cut it on like some wood that was sticking up on the court. Uh, you know, beats punching with mirrors and picture frames and stuff. Like, if you hurt it on the, on the court, you hurt it on the court. Um, so, you know, there's progress there in itself. Like, he hurt it for basketball reasons instead of frustration reasons. But in terms of, like, it's no coincidence that the Celtics played a faster-paced brand of basketball. It's no coincidence that Jalen Brown's struggles kind of just evaporated the moment there was, like, a genuine ball handler on the floor. Like, and I think that's just something that Marcus Smart has really developed into this year is a guy that facilitates the offense, like keep like initiates offense quite well this year. Like, yeah, when he's on the floor, it doesn't seem to just go pass, pass, pass around the, pe- the perimeter anymore. He's always looking to penetrate and kick. And I feel like he's one of the guys that's truly bought into what Udoka's preaching more than most. Um, so I think that, you know, when you look at, the, and this is more eye test and X's and O's than it is stats. But I think when you look at the way the Celtics played an offense without Marcus Smart and the way the ball pinged around and decisions were made quicker and pace was quicker and then obviously there was in, uh, more paint touches in the game against Phoenix as well, which Marcus Smart was quite responsible for. I think that you have to say that um, 
he's he's growing into a guy that isn't just a defensive presence anymore, and he's really limited in those stupid shot attempts. So my progress report is Marcus Smart making a huge difference against Phoenix. I know there's going to be people listening to this pod like, what, you want to play Marcus Smart? You know, Marcus Smart splits opinion everywhere. Uh, but this year, man, he's, he's growing into like a legit playmaker. I still don't think he's a, a starting point guard on a championship team. I'm not going to blow smoke away. There's no fire. But I do think that he's developing into a guy that you'd feel very comfortable uh, bringing off the bench as your six-man and lead ball handler off the bench. And again, for me, it's the paint touches. I think that a lot of the good stuff that happened for Boston was getting into the paint, kicking it out to a high post big, and then running a secondary action there. Marcus Smart was also one of the guys to make sure that the bigs got the ball early and high. Uh, if you watch that second half in particular, Smart would run the break and really just kind of get that pass in as early as possible to a Rob Williams or an Al Horford and allow them to initiate offense. And then he'd just move off ball, make Smart cuts, make Smart uh, pin downs, flare screens, whatever it needed to be. So a huge game from Marcus Smart, in my opinion. One that he didn't get enough credit for. And it was a 20-point scoring night for him as well, or above 20. So that was another thing as well with him getting to the rim. Uh, and I'm much happier to see Smart get into the rim than I am to see him jack in the freeze. And he, he's doing such a great job this year playing in off of Udoka's philosophy of you know making a decision on the catch. He doesn't have the quickest first step in a triple threat position, but when he catches the ball and makes a quick decision, he's 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 super quick to the rim, man. He's getting into the paint. Um, he's done such a great job this year, finishing with his left hand. You see that a lot more this year where he, he does that little scoop shot with his left hand, especially over bigs. Um, he's using his body really well. The Celtics probably haven't and I don't have the numbers to back this up, but just eye test, it seems like they don't go to him quite as much in the post as as what Brad Stevens like to do. It seemed like Brad was like far more intentional with getting Marcus in the post. Not to say that he hasn't played out of the post this year, but it seems like he's doing a lot more from, from the point of attack. And I, I wouldn't mind seeing him getting back into the post a little bit more this year um, and making that part of our offense, especially if, in certain lineups where he could, we could almost invert the offense and have him play out of the post and, and stretch the floor. Say if we go small ball five or granite the five or something like that. Um, so Marcus has been great, man. I, I really, lo- I, I think when you think back on the two games that we lost against the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Los Angeles Clippers, if Marcus Martin had played in those games, I have a hard time seeing the Celtics lose in Minnesota with Marcus on the floor. Because Jalen just looks so overwhelmed being the primary playmaker. Same thing with the Clippers. Those are those games that Marcus steps up. When nobody else is hitting shots, those are the games that Marcus goes like six for eight from three. You know, so I, I've loved what I've seen out of Marcus this year. All the people that are still anti Marcus, you got to come around at some point because he's been one of our most consistent players. And aside from like one or two stretches in which he was bad for a couple games in a row, Marcus has been awesome. Um, I've loved seeing what I've what I've seen out of Marcus this year, especially in that last game, and it was really great to have him back. Um, next next thing we got in the in the weekly format is our fun stat of the week. Do you have a fun stat ready to go? I do. I've just said I didn't want to beat Jalen Brown anymore, but I have to because I saw somebody tweet this out the other day, and uh, I just found it really interesting. So it was looking at Jalen Brown as um 
as a playmaker, right? What his ball movement's like, what his assist ratio is like. And somebody tweeted this out, but I can't find the tweet, so I'm just going to read the numbers that I found. So over his career, so we're talking over 359 games, 252 as a starter, more than 10,000 minutes. Jalen Brown has had 649 assists over his career, okay? How many turnovers do you think he's had? Um, I'm going to guess 649. <laughs> 642. So it's, it's basically an equal one assist to one turnover ratio. And uh, I just found that re- like ridiculous. Like I know that Brown can turn the ball over a little bit, and when you're an athletic guy that slashes with the ball in his hands, sometimes guys are going to get the, you know, poke the ball away or get their hands on the ball. Pause. Um, so I think that there's a lot there that you can kind of like you can compartmentalize and be like, you know what, the way he plays, the style he plays, the position he plays, turnovers are inevitable. But at the same time, a one-for-one ratio off a guy that just got thrust into being the number one option on a team, and we continually talk about developing as a playmaker. That's striking as a reason to lower our expectations or change our expectations in the next step of Jalen Brown's development. Because if we're asking him to develop into like a key ball handling facilitator, we're asking a 25-year-old guy that's just about to enter his prime to make a huge shift in the way he plays the game. You, you happen to know um, Jason Tatum's career assist to turnover ratio? I can't find him. I can you find, can find it first. Let, let's let's uh, let's do a little competition here. Who can yeah, we're doing a competition. Better? We're yeah, doing it. Okay. <laughs> let's see. Uh, okay, I got him. Ah, damn it! You beat me. All right, go. I know where to look though, so it's a bit unfair. All right, then. <laughs> so Jason Tatum has eight hundred and ninety-six assists to six hundred and fifty-six turnovers. So it's yeah. a bit. So what would that be, math-wise? Uh, Eight-six. Yeah, he's probably talking like yeah, you're probably talking like a 0.7 assist to turnover ratio, which is better than a one to one, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at if you if if you want to par it down for either of these guys and just look over the last two years, which I think is a bit more fair. Yeah. So Jason Tatum over the last two years, where he's been tasked as a primary facilitator, has 400 assists to 265 turnovers, which is far more uh, reasonable. And Jalen Brown, over the last two years, where, again, we've been discussing his growth as a playmaker, has got, bear, bear with me. So this is last season and the season before for both of them. This season and last season for both of them. Brown has 253 assists to 225 turnovers. So the, the, the form still rings true for Brown, yeah. whereas you can see the growth in Tatum as a ball handler and facilitator. So I just think we need to re re-examine what we're seeing from Jalen and what we want his next step to be because it's quite clear that he's not the guy to initiate an offense. For but sure. He's definitely the guy to finish some offense. Yeah, yeah. J- I mean, JB is such a good scorer, man. That's what he came into the league billed as. is like kind of a one-trick pony, right, is that he could he, he could score the ball. He could get to the rim. I know early in his career, the narrative was JB gets to the rim but doesn't finish well at the rim. Well, he, you know, he's He's definitely turned that around where he's one of the best finishers uh, near the rim. I know this year I think he's regressed a little bit in that, um, but he, he's so good at the rim, man. He's so good getting to the hoop and getting into the paint. I, I I would like JB to lean into that strength a little bit more as we discussed on the last pod, not settle for so many threes and really drive the ball into the paint and then learn how to make passes out of those paint touches because I think that's where he's gonna that's where he's going to see most of his assists. If he just continues to do what he does well, getting into the paint and then looking to make passes. I mean, even even in the last game, man, like he, there was one moment in which towards the end of the game, he turned the ball over. He had Robert Williams in the dunker spot. He drove it on like a 45-degree angle, 
and he got the ball like poked away from him as he was going to make the lob pass. And that was such an easy play, but he drove with his head down, like looking to score and saw the lob a little bit too late. If he can just drive to the rim with his head up, I think he's going to be fine. You know, that that's not easy to do um, because there's hands everywhere. There's bodies everywhere, but I, th- I think JB will definitely improve his playmaking. I agree with you, though. I, I don't see JB as like a heliocentric guy in the league. Um, for, for my fun stat, it's kind of on the same lines. It has to do with passing and passing stats. So in the game against the Suns, the Celtics passed the ball 330 times. Against the Clippers, we actually passed the ball 340 times. What would you say our average passes per game are, if you had to guess? 328. 288 this year. Average passes per game, 288. Um, For reference, the Golden State Warriors actually lead the league at 318 passes per game. On average. On average, yeah. Um, So over the last 10, so for the season right now, to reiterate, the Celtics are at 288 passes per game. Over the last 10 games, they are at 297 passes per game. And over the last five games, they're at 310 passes per game, which is pretty interesting. Um, and I, I also kind of just wanted to ask you some other questions just, just for fun, man, just to see just to see where you're at. Um, who would you say leads the league in passes per game in terms of individual players, if you had to guess? And the number is 73.4 passes per game. Hmm. There's no Ben Simmons. <laughs> I, just yeah, yeah, no ben Simmons. I just wanted to throw that out there. Who would I think that's a primary playmaker? Do you know what? I want to infuriate a bunch of people, but he's playing like he's in his early 20s again. Is it LeBron? It's not LeBron. LeBron is in the, he's in like the top 10 though. It's uh, Jokic. Uh, okay. Yeah. You can see yeah. that, especially with no Jamal Murray. Mm-hmm. So Jokic leads the league in passes per game at 73.4 passes per game. That's if you had to guess, who would you say leads the Celtics and what would you put their number at? I'd say, it's, I'd say it's Marcus Smart with between 55 and 58 passes a game. He's at Marcus Smart is at 50 passes per game. Oh, I was well, close. Yeah, you were close. That was good, man. Um, so in the last game, Marcus, in the game that we had um, 330 team passes versus Suns, Marcus led the team with 77 passes. Now, think Jokic leads averages 73.4 per game. So what you were saying earlier about Marcus getting into the offense, getting the ball to the bigs, like it, it holds true, man. 77 passes in that last game, which was very significant. Jalen Brown for the season averages like 31 passes per game. <laughs> How many turnovers per game? What's the number of turnovers per game? Let's have a look. Turnovers per game at the moment are free. It's a 10%. Yeah. So this is just like a number that's interesting to me because – Although passes don't always, there aren't, there are different, there's a difference between like a good pass and just a pass to make a pass, you know, just passing the ball around the perimeter. And I think that may have been the difference between the 340 passes against the Clippers versus the 330 against the Suns. I would venture to guess that the, the passes against the Suns were far more effective passes than the passes against the Clippers. Would you, would yeah, you I mean, the only thing I'll, I'll push back on there is like, the passes against the Clippers generated legitimate wide open looks. It's just they, they weren't falling, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I think that's been a, but I would say that, like, for me, and I wrote about this, like, if your freeze aren't falling, start making passes to the interior, start making back cuts to the interior. And I think what happened was 
the Celtics were making good passes against the Clippers. They were making great passes against the Suns, right? Because mm-hmm. the passes that they were making against the Suns were leading to penetration. They were leading to finishes at the rim. And then the when they were open from three, they were converting. So I think the difference between a good pass and a great pass is timeliness. Yeah, I think on time you know, on target. Yeah, I think like, you know, a 0.8 second delay from making a pass can be the difference between it being a great pass and a good pass or a good pass and a bad pass. Like that's how small your margins are at that level. Uh, so I'd say I, I'd agree there. I think it was great passing against the Suns and good passing against the Clippers just because I think there was a just a bit more tentativeness in the execution against Los Angeles than there was against Phoenix. What did you think about the strategy of getting Grant Williams in the post a little bit more on those split actions? So I wanted to tweet about this, but as we spoke about earlier, I've been busy as hell, right? So like, um, one of the things that really impressed me about Grant Williams, I know everyone's talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone's talking about his three-point shooting, and rightly so, like huge improvement, one of the best corner three-point shooters in the league. But what no one's talking about is how effective he's been scoring around the rim this year. So out of all bigs in the league, and we're going to crash, what are we crashing? Yeah, so I'm cleaning glass.com. Grant Williams is classed as a big. He's finishing 86% of his non-garbage time looks around the rim. That's the 99th percentile. He's in the top 1% of bigs around the league for his finishing at the rim. Like, that is an underrated, and I get it. Like, if you if you look back to Grant Williams in college, he was very much a rim finisher. Back to the basket, bully his guy down, finish around the rim. But he struggled, like, you know, if you want to talk about a growth there, last year he finished 62% of his looks around the rim. His rookie season, 67%. This year, 86%. The jump is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. He, like, he's almost what do you, what automatic. What do you attribute that to? <clears throat> I think it's positioning. I think it's timeliness. And I genuinely think it's just um, a bit more explosiveness. Like, he's mm-hmm. lost that weight. He seems to be able to move a bit quicker on his feet. I think that when he um, when he drop steps on a guy now, it's just that he, uh, that little bit quicker, so we can lock him on his hip a bit more. And I think he understands as well, like way, the way NBA defenses rotate now. You know, third year, you, you've seen the way a defense closes out. You've seen how help defenders come in at you. Uh, but that jump is striking, man. Like, really, like a, it's a ridiculous jump. So mm-hmm. I think that um, I'm not surprised to think the Grant to see them running more offense for Grant at the rim because at the moment that he his money from corner three, especially the right side. And around the rim. So run it, dude. He's your best run. He's one of your best finishers at the rim. Run it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the one question I would probably ask about that stat is how many of Grant Williams' attempts in the previous years were against other teams' big men versus this year, how often he's playing in mismatched basketball opportunities in the post. Because especially in against the Suns, you know, we started him at the three. And when we were running those split actions, so much of what he was doing in the post was against a smaller guy, right? He took Devin Booker into the post a few times. Um, Cam Johnson's probably taller than he is, but he's not built anywhere near what Grant Williams is. So if you're playing Grant, not at the small ball five, right? If you're playing him at a small ball five, he's probably not going to be able to back down a big. But if you're playing him at a four, if you're playing him at a three, which is a really interesting move, I actually really liked how Ime coached that last game. Um, I, I would love to see Grant Williams get more opportunities, especially off of split actions in the post, because if, if he can, if, if we run that split action and he sees he has an opportunity to pin a two guard or pin a point guard in the post and the balls being initiated from Robert Williams or Al Horford in the high post, that that's probably a, a really nice um, basket that we could get whenever we wanted. Very similar to what the Boston Celtics used to do with Paul Pierce when Paul Pierce would pin somebody on, on a ball reversal and Antoine Walker would throw the ball over the top. I feel like Grant Williams can definitely take advantage of smaller guys in the post. 
And that's that's a crazy number, man. You say 80, 80, 85%, 90th percentile? Yeah. So the one thing to note here is that, so yeah, he's one of the best finishers um, in his size. But the one thing, in terms of statistics, right, we're not saying in terms of skill, the one thing to note here is that Grant Williams is notoriously a low usage uh, scorer around the ring. He doesn't get that many opportunities. So the numbers do skew a little bit. But what I will say is that in his rookie year, he took 63 attempts at the rim, finished 67% of them, good for 42. Again, this is non-garbage time because cleaning the glass automatically filters that out. Um, In his sophomore year, so last year, he took 58 attempts at the rim, finished 36. He took 28 this year, finished 24. So he's already more than halfway up to where he was last year, um, but he's getting far more minutes. So I think that we're going to... And I think that because of his success rate around the rim, I'm expecting to see that start to rise. I could see him finishing the year. And this isn't this. I mean, this is far from conservative. But if he could take 120 shots around the rim this year and finish 80 of them, 85 of them, you've got to feel good about that development going into his fourth year, right? Especially with the progress we've seen this year. So the number, the percentage is high, the percentile is high, but you do have to contextualize that as. Other big men in the league are probably exclusively trying to finish around the rim, and Grant Williams is sitting above them simply because he has a lower offensive frequency from that region of the floor. So you do need to contextualize it a little bit. But for terms of a Celtics podcast, Grant Williams is one of the best rim finishers ever. Let's carry on. <laughs> yeah, he, he's been he's been awesome, man. He's been awesome. Another guy that I think would look really really good in a Golden State uniform. Um, I think Grant Williams, if like we're we're looking to baby Draymond, dude. Baby Al, baby yeah. Dre. Right. Yep. I, I think he would actually look good. And that's what I think the Celtics should probably aspire to, right? We don't have Steph Curry, who's who's an offense unto himself. But we do have guys that draw a lot of attention and have a lot of gravity. And if, if Jason Tate and Jalen Brown run more split actions between the two of them, I think that could be really interesting. Um, I know that on some level, when you don't want to have too many split actions between guys of similar size and similar skill sets, because it's very easy to just switch those things. But I would like to leverage their their skill sets together a little bit more, um, especially with, with JT coming back. Uh, so the next thing we got in our Sunday format, Adam, is we go into our winners and losers of the week. Um, so we, I, I've actually kind of – you've already kind of talked on the two people that I was going to talk about here. Um, so I, I'll go quick through mine, and then I'll kick it back to you, okay? So my, my winner of the week is Marcus Smart. Uh, for everyone saying Marcus Smart is expendable, having him out in the last two games that also coincided with Jason Tatum being out, I think those two games made us see how important his playmaking is to this team. Uh, I think it's not unreasonable to say the Celtics win both of those games if Smart plays in those games. And similarly, my loser of the week is Jalen Brown. Um, as you said earlier, he got exposed. He really did get exposed. I don't think anyone ever thought JB could be like a primary playmaker like a heliocentric type player like LeBron or Luka. But we did finally get a chance to see how JB could function as a good stats, bad team guy for like a two game sample size. And it wasn't pretty. And this isn't a knock as you've been saying for, you know, even in our, our messages back and forth to each other, this isn't a knock on how important he is to the team. And I know JB has signed on for a few more years, but in case he had like visions of a max deal on the open market, I think these are the games in which he needed to show a bit more. He, you know, not just I'm a really good scorer. He looked overwhelmed when he was being asked to be that do everything guy. You know, when Marcus Smart is out along with Jason Tatum, along with Dennis Schroeder, it's just, hey, JB, what you got? Can you do it? And 
he showed right now that he probably can't do that. He had the chance to elevate himself in the eyes of everybody around the league. And instead of elevating himself, I think he got exposed. So I think he can definitely still improve. Um, but I think it's fair to say he failed, man. He failed the experiment despite this being a very small sample size. JB is my loser of the week and Marcus Smart is my winner of the week. Yeah, so same for me. I think that JB went from being a clear-cut second option as JB is my loser too. I think he went from being a clear-cut second option to now a guy that I see as a play finisher and somebody that would fit better as a third option on an offense. Um, they definitely need a, uh, a connector, somebody like a Gordon Hayward, a Lonzo Ball, a Ricky Rubio, a Chris Paul. Someone built in that type of mold that can get JB on the move and allow him to finish, um, use his finishing skills to, you know, finish a play. And then you've got Jason Tatum as your clear cut number one. So there's a world where I see Jalen having to accept being the third star on a team if he wants to ever win the championship. You can improve as a scorer all you want, but what we've seen is, and unfortunately, it's the bad truth. Like, you know, I don't think Jalen Brown ever cracks the top 25 in the league. Like, I think, you know, top top 35 is kind of his ceiling at this point in terms of being a do-it-all guy. That you need to, like, if you want to build a championship with these two guys, you're going to need to find someone that can set Jalen Brown up consistently. And you can't expect Tatum to do that and take away from his own offense because then you're taking away one of your most potent weapons. So that was a big learning experience for us as fans. For sure. And I, I would push back on one thing. I think JB does have a chance to crack the top 25, but in my opinion, it's not can he become a better playmaker. I think his chance of uh, cracking the top 25 is if he figures out a way to be like the best defensive version of himself. If he yeah, turns into like an all-NBA defensive guy, then I think he could crack, uh, crack top 25. That's fair. I just feel like we've seen so many lapses in his defensive like ability. Like, you know, you'll see him take a big jump, then he'll start losing track of his man again because he, sometimes I think Jalen Brand's his own worst enemy and he overthinks possessions on defense. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a world I could see that. I'm not saying it's impossible for him to become a top 25 guy. I just feel like my expectation of that actually happening took a real big blow over these last couple of games. For winners, for me, it's, uh, it's Robert Williams. I think he got put in a position to expand his role, to expand like permanently moving forwards, like to become more of a facilitator, to become more than just a lab prep for this team. Uh, he got put, to, he got put to the test. He had his trial. He succeeded exceptionally well, uh, and I think that we're going to see him play a, a much larger role in the offense moving forward. We're still going to get the labs, but we're going to get a lot more mid-post offense from him. Uh, there's going to be a world where he can start expanding his jump shot to that mid-range more consistently. Uh, so for me, he's the winner of the week. To get a triple-double in the first game where you're truly tasked with running an offense, is a, it's testament to what he's capable of and how he's been underutilized throughout the last few like the last few months. Yeah, and anytime you're the first player in NBA history to do something, that's really impressive. And he was the first player in NBA history ever to have a triple-double on 100% field goal percentage with five blocks. That's crazy, man. Throughout that whole game, I was rooting because I know there have only been a few times in which people have had a five, five by five stat line, you know, five points, five rebounds, five assists, five steals, five blocks. I think that's only been done like a, a handful of times in NBA history. And Robert Williams, for a moment there, I thought he was going to have a triple double with five blocks and five steals. <laughs> like, I was like, this might actually be possible. Yeah. The fact that he was making that possible to me was was mind-blowing because you know I'm a huge Robert Williams fan. He's probably my favorite player on the Celtics right now. 
and to see him reach the potential, at least for one game of what I think a lot of people think he can be was so, so rewarding, especially when you're when you're kicking around the idea of like, oh, do we need to potentially upgrade that big position? You know, on our last pod, I, I pitched the idea of trading for Yusuf Nurkic and saying like, oh, Nurkic is a clear upgrade over those guys. But if Robert Williams plays like he played in the last game, obviously he's not going to do exactly what he did. But if he can function in a similar role for this team, I think Robert Williams at the center spot is perfectly fine by me, man. And I'm, I'm happy not moving on from him at all. Yeah, I'm completely down. I think that the problem with the center spot is you can find value for cheap around the league. Right? Yeah. If you're not one of the top five bigs, then you're in this weird, like, I get it. There's a tier two and a tier three then. You know, you're going to Yusuf Nurkic's in tier two, that type of guy. But what happens is you, you're one. Of, you're in the most expendable position in the league because like impactful centers can be had on minimum deals left, right, and center. Nerlens Noel can be an impactful center, but the difference is once you be, once you add in that playmaking to a high level where you are potentially an eight to ten assist a night guy or a six to ten assist a night guy, you all of a sudden completely raise your team ceiling and become far more valuable. And uh, when you add in the athleticism, the thing is. For me, whenever I look at athletic players, whether that be at guard, at wing, at big, in my head, the one question I've always got is, what happens if you get an injury that removes that athleticism? How do you remain relevant in the league? Derek Rose has done a fantastic job of redeveloping himself to be an impactful guard in the league post-athleticism, like destroying injuries. Zach Levine managed, like, Zach Levine somehow managed to come back from his injuries and still be athletic as hell, but completely revamped his game, knowing that if that injury happens again, he's not reliant on being an above the rim threat. For, and which is why, like, I look at someone like De'Aaron Fox that is incredibly athletic, incredibly fast, but if you have an injury, how do you stay relevant? Kemba Walker couldn't, hasn't figured that out yet. John Wall. So, John Wall hasn't figured that out yet. When I look at Rob Williams, the first thing I ask myself is because of your injury history, if you have a big injury that takes away a large portion of that bounce, are you still impactful? Well, developing him more as a playmaker means he has a long career in the league because he doesn't, if that, if the, you know, God forbid that happened, because I'd never wish an injury on anyone from any team in any sport because at the end of the day, that's your livelihood. But um, if it did happen, which is a possibility, you want to know that he can come back and continue to have an impactful career on a rotation, on a roster and a rotation. And the passing is the way to do that for him. So um, if they can develop him there, what they're not only raising the team ceiling, but they're making sure that the, that Robert Williams is a viable option for them and for his own career for the, for the next five to 10 years. Yeah, we need to see that happen, man. I want to keep Robert Williams in green for, for the entirety of his career, for sure. And especially in, in over the length of this next contract, which I think is going to turn out to be one of the biggest deals in the league. Um, all right, man, finishing up here. Sunday format, week ahead, Celtics play. They started playing like literally right now as we're recording against the Magic. We got the Spurs on Wednesday, the Knicks on Thursday, and then the Knicks again on Saturday. What are you looking expect, forward to? I expect four wins from four. Okay, I'm, I'm okay. I can live with you dropping a game against the Spurs, right? Because like uh, Murray likes to push the pace, likes to penetrate. That he'll look to get out on the break. And as I said at the start of this show, transition defense is where my questions are. The Knicks right now are absolutely decimated. They have no uh, They have no um, no Kemba, no Fournier, no Mitchell Robinson. Some of these guys will be back by the end of the week, but they're going to need to revamp, re-ramp up 
their fitness. The, the Knicks have been struggling all year. They've become super inconsistent. They're not the same Knicks team that we faced at the start of the year, and they're definitely not the same Knicks team that fought their way into the playoffs last year. So um, I'd expect the Celtics, if they play like they did against Phoenix, minimum a 3-1. and one. Uh, Ideally, they, they go 4-0 and through the week. I feel you on that. To me, I think the game that we drop is the game in in New York on Thursday, second night of a back-to-back. Um, I think we get the Spurs on Wednesday because we owe them one, right? They they beat us in, in San Antonio, that ridiculous uh, DeJounte Murray game. So I think I think we should beat the Spurs. We owe them one at home. I think we take care of business against the Magic, but they just got a whole bunch of guys back uh, right before the game. So who knows, man? They got some big guys that might give our big some trouble, um, but I, I think we should be able to beat the Magic. But knowing the Celtics, they're probably going to lose tonight. Uh, so I think we're gonna go. I think we're gonna go three and one. We lose the game on Thursday against the Knicks. And what I want to see the number that I brought up with the passes. Um, I, I just want to see. I'm gonna track that number throughout the week to see if the Celtics remain in the 315 range of passes. Because I think that's gonna. To me, that's gonna end up being the magic number for the Celtics. Can we pass the ball at towards a league high amount of times throughout the game and really share the rock? All right, and bet, the only thing that I'd push, I'd, I'm not sure when New York starts to get players back. So if New York is still, are still where they're at now in terms of COVID protocols by Thursday, um, there's, there's no excuse to not win that For game because sure. they're just missing too many guys. Right, if everybody's enjoyed the show, make sure you scroll down on your app, hit them five stars, make it turn gold, then scroll down a little bit more, write us a nice message. We like nice messages, nice messages make us feel We haven't good. got one in a while. Yeah, I'm feeling a bit. Lit. We've had a couple of five star reviews, but no one's wrote anything. And it's, uh, I'm feeling a little bit, a uh, little bit un- undervalued. Under, I feel. Well, I feel maybe like they're, doing, maybe they're doing what we asked them to do at this point in the pod. Maybe, maybe oh. what they're doing is they're spreading, spreading the good word through the word of mouth. Maybe what they're doing is when they go to the gym for their New Year's resolutions, they're telling their personal trainer that they just hired for the next month, and then you'll never see them again. But they're talking to their personal <laughs> trainer. They're letting them know. I've been listening. Oh, what are you listening to? I'm listening to the Celtics pod on the Celtics blog network. And um, I'm listening to this cool dude, Adam. He doesn't live in Boston. This cool dude, Greg, he doesn't live in Boston. And this cool dude, Will, he doesn't live in Boston. But they all love the Celtics. And that's what brings them together because basketball is a global community. And we're a brotherhood, man. We are yeah, a brotherhood. We are. Yeah, we are. And we want everybody who's listening to this show to feel part of that brotherhood. Until next time. Stay safe. Enjoy some Celtics victories because we're overdue a bit of a run of Celtics victories. And we will catch you again on Wednesday. Peace, love, prosperity, New Year. Celtics for the W. Peace. Disrespecting you haters. I ain't sweating your opinion. Y'all been testing my patience. Never did it for a check. I've been impressed with the famous. Just rather be creative than stressing my wages. Ageless every time I lay a verse down. One play at a time. Keep it moving like a first down. And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this. MJ never made it to the majors. Still, he chased greatness. Expected that he might fail. And I might too. I might never get to pop champagne. Celebrating with